and welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm Naomi Smith. Beyond borders, backstops and The Bunker Daily, there's only one B word on everyone's lips in Northern Ireland, and it's not Biden from Ballinar. Brexit has transformed the way that voters perceive themselves, each other and their relationship with Britain, as well as having a professional and somewhat emotional interest in Brexit. Listeners may also know that I grew up in Northern Ireland, first on the Causeway Coast and later in Belfast. Being a teenager in Northern Ireland during the height of the Troubles shaped my politics more than any other event. My town centre got flattened by a bomb in the early 90s. My friends lost loved ones in the Oma bombing in the late 90s. And it was a regular occurrence that our school would be evacuated due to terrorist threats. And so the signing of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998 genuinely felt momentous to my generation, a generation that was on the cusp of adulthood. Perhaps finally, the violence would end and a more peaceful and prosperous island would flourish both north and south. So for all the talk of fish, state aid and level playing fields, there is relatively little mention of the threats to and risks for Northern Ireland and Ireland as a consequence of Brexit. And let's not forget that Brexit talks have been taking place against a backdrop of a global pandemic with differing COVID responses from Dublin and Belfast. And so today we're going to unpack some of this. And it's a slightly different Bunker Daily format insofar as I've got not one, not two, but three brilliant guests joining me today. Neil Richmond is the Fina Gale Doyle member for Dublin Rathdown and leads the Shared Ireland Discussions, a series of virtual talks encouraging constructive, inclusive dialogue across the border and political perspectives. Mike Nesbitt is an Ulster Unionist Party MLA and former leader of the party from 2012 to 2017. And long-term friend of the bunker, Claire Hanna, is SDLP MP for Belfast South, who recorded a lovely obit of John Hume with me over the summer. Claire, let me start with you. Um, Despite their other differences, most Northern Irish voters rejected Brexit. And Professor Adrian Guelk of Queen's University Belfast argues that the referendum has actually brought both North and South closer in the face of a hard or no deal Brexit. Is, is that a sense you share? I, I suppose it has, because uh, prior to 2016, you know, we were all kind of minding our own business and, and trading and living north, south, east, west. And, and that was very much the spirit of the agreement. You could be and you could go and you could sell and buy wherever you wanted to. And, and I suppose Brexit necessarily, we knew um, that it was going to put barriers somewhere. And, and I suppose, yes, it does force a lot more north, south thinking uh, than might have been been the case and I think there are positives to that and some of what might have been happening organically um, has been accelerated and I know prior to the referendum and in the years since I sat in many media studios and in different meetings kind of trying to caution particularly DUP um, politicians that that is what they were doing. They were recasting the economy and relationships more on a north-south basis. Um, So uh, yes, it it, it has happened almost um, by accident. And I suppose everybody, businesses and politics, we're all just trying to uh, play the cards that we've been dealt at the moment. And Mike, do you think Brexit has transformed the way people in Northern Ireland and Ireland perceive Irishness and Britishness? Like, has it helped to entrench pre-existing identities or help reframe them a bit? Well, I I think, Naomi, the the question of identities fascinates me because in Northern Ireland, as you will know, we tend to look at things in black and white binary issues. Are you a Protestant? Are you a Catholic? Are you a unionist, a nationalist? 
uh, and so on. And we have a whole sort of suitcase full of, of descriptors, which are either or, which are necessarily divisive because you're either one of us or you're one of them. Uh, and, and I think what Brexit did was, was remind everybody that for most of us, uh, our sense of identity is much more complex than that. The great Ulster poet John Hewitt described himself in multiple ways. He said, I am an Ulsterman, but I'm also Irish and British and European. And he went on to tell us why that was important. He said, because if you were to deny me any part of that mixture, you will diminish who I am. And I think that has been the impact of Brexit for many people in Northern Ireland, for whom a sense of Europeanness was a very important part of their identity mix. Now, this may apply more on the nationalist side than on the unionist side, but it's not exclusive uh, to one another. No, it's not. And, and it's a lovely, I'd love to describe myself like that. I'm going to write that down. Good old Hugh. Yeah, and, and it was important because, I mean, I, I met two lovely guys on the day of the referendum result, 24th of June, 2016, at a, at a function. And they took me to one side and they explained the impact on them. They said, look, we are business people. Uh, if you asked us, do we aspire to United Ireland someday, we would say absolutely. But if your second question is, will you sign up to be an activist to achieve a United Ireland, we wouldn't be interested. And the reason we're not interested is we're too busy making good money, having our children well-educated, and basically just enjoying life, living on this little postage stamp in the world map that's called Northern Ireland. But on that day, everything changed. They are now saying, where do I sign up to be an activist? And it's because they've had their sense of Europeanness denied, and also because the 1998 agreement said you and only you define your identity. And you can be British, or you can be Irish, or you can be both. Now, they'd gone further than that to include being European, and what they felt was that English nationalists came in over their heads and did exactly what the agreement said could not be done and denied them uh, part of their sense of identity. And while the focus, of course, is on trade and tariffs and the border, uh, I think longer term, the real damage of Brexit is the impact on people's sense of identity. That's absolutely fascinating. And I, I would love us to come back uh, slightly later in the show and touch on the chance of a border poll in Northern Ireland. But Mike, I'm, I'm really keen to get your view on this. Now, lots of people in Northern Ireland have strong familial ties to Scotland, where we are told that Boris Johnson is the best thing to have ever happened for the independence campaign because he is so unpopular. So uh, I'd love to get your view of what an independent Scotland might mean for Northern Ireland. I mean, are Scottish and Irish calls for independence connected in any way? Well, well what I would say is this, um, that there are a, a number of ironies um, that, that I see taking place. One is the fact that the IRA, uh, for, for people of my generation and my background, were the biggest obstacles to the United Ireland they wanted to achieve because their bombs and bullets and human rights abuses were a form of coercion. The second is that the, the organisation doing most uh, to bring on a united Ireland at the moment or put it back on the political debate is the Democratic Unionist Party, not least through their support of Brexit. The third is that the biggest break to a border poll is probably the Taoiseach, the Tonishta, because they understand nobody's ready for it. But the fourth is that while unionists here have spent centuries looking over their shoulder and identifying 
Irish nationalists as the biggest threat to the union. Irish nationalists, I think, are now in third place on the podium behind Scottish nationalists mm-hmm. and English nationalists. English. So if Scottish nationalists get their way, and I suspect it, it is going their way in terms of being able to call a second referendum, which I would expect they would win, well, then de facto that is the end of the union. And I think if union, if English nationalism is still rampant at that point, they will look at Northern Ireland and say, we are paying you a lot more on an annual basis by way of a subvention than we paid to be members of the European single market. Why are we doing that? Because that's a lot of acute hospitals. That's a lot of classroom assistance. That's a lot of bobbies on the beat, the sort of language that Boris talks. And, and then I think Northern Ireland's place in that reconfigured union without Scotland uh, is under immense existential threat. Neil, is Johnson any less unpopular in Dublin than Edinburgh? No, he's fairly unpopular altogether. Um, the comparison I'd make, and this is no personal slight, but just looking at the reactions of people, is that he'd be viewed in the exact same light as Donald Trump would be. And I think it was 88% of people in this jurisdiction said they'd vote for Biden. So I'd say Johnson be on a similar one. Um, and it's who he surrounded himself South beside Naomi, like the people we hear talking about Brexit and Irish media, the people who come across are very much from the ERG and they present a very narrow vision of English or British nationalism and they can be very derogatory against very real concerns that people in Ireland and across the EU would have. It's the sort of people who thrived on the headlines attacking the EU for the last 20 years and that feeds into the impression that uh, Boris Johnson gives as well. Claire, Johnson further alienated almost everyone in Northern Ireland with his plan to permanently close cases of serious crimes committed during the Troubles. Has the current British government just proven themselves uniquely detached from Northern Ireland despite being named the the Conservative and Unionist Party? I think so. I think, um, you know, there was a lot of focus on, you know, and a lot of rhetorical uh, emphasis on, on the union and how important our precious union in Northern Ireland was during the period when they required the DUP for, for, for close votes. And that's kind of fallen away now. But you're right, both, I mean, in just in the last couple of months, within a few weeks, they brought forward the internal market bill and a, a bill around, you know, the spy cops thing, which obviously has has uh, ramifications and echoes here. And as you say, their proposals, uh, again, to just uh, close the book on on legacy cases. And it does show, yeah, a, a detachment and worse, I suppose, in, in terms of provocation, I suppose, even, um, new, you know, if they were if they were neutral, if they were just ignoring Northern Ireland, it would be even um, better than kind of fairly provocative um, stuff. So, I mean, I think they maybe want to possess it like a toddler wants to possess a toy in the nursery or something, but I don't think they've got any real understanding of the complexities. They certainly have demonstrated that. As Neil said, you know, some of the pronouncements about, you know, for example, let's, you know, close the land bridge and starve them into giving us what we want in Brexit, et cetera, et cetera, are kind of fairly ignorant of of, of Irish history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 I suppose, yeah, just the fact that the whole thing seems to be the whole barrier to a Brexit deal seems to be 
you know, level playing field and them not wanting to follow rules that they say that they're going to follow anyway. And yet they're inflicting just four years of uncertainty and instability in Northern Ireland just to have a kind of a power that they say they aren't going to use. And it just gives a fairly clear indicator of, 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 of how shallow their attachment is to people here. Ignoring London for a little bit, um, Neil, after a a couple of decades of relative calm uh, on the island of Ireland, along came two mega issues, uh, COVID and Brexit. Do you think they have altered the ways that Northern Irish politics affects Irish politics and vice versa? I mean, has it forced sport into play? And perhaps you could tell us a bit about your series of shared island discussions. Yeah, well, I think to start, believe it or not, on a positive note, uh, Brexit in particular has forced those those of us in the South to really look look in the mirror a bit more and realise that we had absolutely disengaged from politics within Northern Ireland, arguably for the last 10, 15 years. We weren't playing, and this is ordinary politicians, this isn't necessarily at a government level, but societally, we weren't as engaged in the affairs of Northern Ireland that we might have been in the lead up to 1998 and the years thereafter. So I think what we have now, what's being exposed by Brexit, but particularly what's being exposed by COVID in the last few weeks and months, shows that there is, regardless of the constitutional question, there is a requirement for us to engage a lot more, a lot more on the really practical issues um, that start with conversations whereby you go in and say, look, let's park the constitutional issue. This isn't about something that might happen in 20 years. Let's not rush to that point. But how can we cooperate better on education, on healthcare, obviously with COVID? How can we, you know, realise lots of these things that have been promised in relation to cross-border trade and that sort of stuff? But really what it comes back to, and something that this Irish government in particular is really pushing on is how many people from Tyrone have friends in Cork and vice versa? Where is that real level of engagement of people going up from Dublin and spending some time in the north doing business there? All on a real on a real personal basis. Like I go back to my personal experience in the in the mid to late nineties when I was in school. We were the only school in Dublin who ever travelled to Northern Ireland to play a rugby match. It just was an alien concept. Why would you go an hour and a half up the road to play someone in Banbridge, but yet you'd spend Two, two and a half, three hours going down to Cork or Limerick. And I think that's something that we really need to break down. And you don't do that by running to the extremes. And there are extremes. Uh, Mike says the DUP are the, the best force for bringing together United Ireland. I'd say Sinn Féin are the best force for stopping United Ireland. And we've seen that quite clearly over the last couple of days in some of the comments by one of their TDs down here. And and so your your talks have been, your, you know, your shared island discussions, like who's involved and what sort of topics do you really focus on? Well, I suppose from a personal level, I've been able to bring together Claire and Mike, and uh, that's the easy bit because they're very easy people to talk to and very reasonable. But what the government is doing is really reaching into kind of more sectoral, so removing the politicians to an extent. So last week there was a discussion with 80 young people under the age of 25. All these people have been born since 1998. They know no different to talk about them, what their hopes are, what their fears are, and what their understanding of each other each other is. It's moving on that cultural discussion. I think one of the big thing that's coming across and I think it's something we need to address it can't just be about north south it goes back to your earlier discussion also has to be about east west and understanding that level of identity I was born and raised in Dublin to two individuals who even though they lived south of what's known as a border their whole lives they considered themselves British and where is that generational change that I only of course consider myself Irish Irish and European but 
a lot of people, my contemporaries, my peers, they don't understand that there is a massive block of people on this island who consider themselves British. And you can't just shout them down. You need to engage them. You need to understand what that feeling identity means. And it's not that narrow impression we might get when we only think of it when we see people from the DUP or the 12th of July parades or certain scenes outside Windsor Park. Well, when I was a kid, and I'm probably ever so slightly older than you, um, cross-community projects were sort of strongly encouraged and often funded jointly by London, Dublin and Washington. And actually, we, we got to go to Europe with our, uh, our little orchestra as well as uh, to play in the South and in the North and, and on, on the mainland in, in uh, England. And last month, Taoiseach Michael Martin announced a new EU-backed 500 million euro shared island fund for collaborative projects to strengthen cross-border unity. Why do you think those kind of new institutions are necessary? Do you think there is actually a risk of cross-border disunity without them? Well, I certainly think that what we have at the moment, there isn't a feeling of cross-border unity or understanding. You know, everyone rushes to the big question. But those practical programmes, like you would have taken part of the peace programmes, like at the end of the day, the UK is leaving the EU. And that means that the greatest vehicle for cooperation is ending. So we need to find new Mm. ways, both within the framework of UK-EU relations, but equally north, south, east, west. I think certainly a lot of the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement are lying dormant. Um, the British-Irish Intergovernmental Council, the North-South Ministerial Mm. Body, um, the British-Irish Parliamentary Assembly. You know, it's one that they should be dynamic. These should be the forefront that we're we're bringing through new ideas and breaking down barriers and getting to people who aren't involved in the sort of the, the political discussion. And certainly... But the Taoiseach is pushing with the shared island unit and it's backed by all three parties and government. And to us, I don't see that there's any reason not to. A lot of people view this as suspicion in the north and that's understandable, but it's putting the practical elements. So all those conversations that might have happened in places like the Glencree Reconciliation Centre, they're all very worthwhile. But the really practical things come with a cost, a financial cost. Mm. So let's be it new roads infrastructure, be it a, a regional focus on the economy and higher education in the Northwest. At the end of the day, if you've, we're a small island and if you have a certain type of cancer in Belfast, why should you consider going to Manchester when Dublin's just down the road? But if we pool our efforts, and I'm not talking about pooling sovereignty or treading into the constitutional matters, but if we actually coordinate as a group of six and a half million individuals on a very small island it'll make things a lot easier and certainly going back to the original point of covid if we had far better cooperation north south but it would make things an element a lot easier but then of course do we necessarily have cooperation within the executive as well those are all pronouncing difficulties difficulties challenges but crucially opportunities in my mind without rushing to an inevitable extreme suggestion one way or the other now, not everyone uh, agrees with you. And Mike, the uh, current UUP leader, Steve Aiken, doesn't appear to be a fan of the shared island unit, arguing that no serious unionist should engage with this, quote, unnecessary layer of bureaucracy. What's your view? Can some politicians just be a bit too closed minded when it comes to cross-border working? Well, I, I think in, in fairness, Steve has justified his position by saying he wanted it to be a shared Islands unit, so not north south but also east west, which of course would be consistent with the three stranded approach uh, of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. 
What, what I would say, Nev, is a more sort of overarching comment is that I think one of the real weaknesses of unionism, uh, which I fear could turn out to be our Achilles heel in the end, is a failure to properly engage and outreach to people who think differently from us, to walk into a room full of Irish politicians who want a united Ireland and say, well, look, I'm a unionist, here's what I think, and here's why, and then go on to look for uh, the common ground. And I think at, at seminal moments in our recent history, unionism's inability or perhaps even unwillingness uh, to engage has cost us badly. I think of 1985, the anglo Agreement, when unionism boycotted every friend they had in Whitehall and Westminster, but in the end had to give up that policy uh, and go back to work, having lost an MP by calling a series of by-elections and protests along the way. I think of Jerry Adams going to New York for the first time in 1994. The two unionist leaders of the day, Ian Paisley and Jim Molyneux, were booked into the conference Adams was speaking at. But in protest, they not only withdrew from the conference, they cancelled their flights, leaving uh, Jerry Adams with the penalty kick. Nobody there to put unionism's case for it. So as a general rule, I would rather be engaging than not. But I do understand uh, Steve's position. In terms of what Neil's saying about recognising there are a lot of people on the island who consider themselves British, we also have to remember there are an awful lot of people on, Great, on the island of Great Britain who consider themselves to be Irish. And I was saying on, on Neil's podcast, a, a really marvellous night, which wasn't for me, but I was there and very pleased to see it, was, was at the end of, of the Oak visit, Michael D. Higgins, President of Ireland, visiting a state visit to England, and a concert celebrating Irish culture in the Royal Albert Hall, an iconic venue. Uh, and all the performers are Irish. The audience is mostly Irish people who've been living in England all their lives, maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And the moment uh, that was really telling was when the guest of honour emerged in the Royal Box, because the guest of honour was not Her Majesty the Queen, it was Michael D. Higgins, President of Ireland. And it wasn't about joint sovereignty, it was about deep mutual respect and a recognition that we're so deeply, deeply intertwined. Think of all the people living in the Republic who support Manchester United or Liverpool, watch Coronation Street, work in buildings which were built by British architects. We are just inextricably linked and we need to recognise that and, and get away from this idea that we're all either pure Brit or pure Gale because very few of us are. Here, here. That's a lovely, a lovely way to to frame it. Now, Claire, there's clearly still a certain level of fractiousness uh, to Irish politics on the issue of reunification, as as near or as far away as it might be. And Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou Macdonald has criticised the EU for not taking a stance on it. What do you think the EU could or should be doing beyond this this 500 million euro fund to foster cross-border relations? Well, it's, it's worth saying, and certainly, you know, I'm in the, in the party of Hume, and, and that's shaped my thinking. Hume always saw the European example to Ireland in terms of managing different identities, that you could, you know, you could you could be French and German and still European. You can be, you know, British and, and, or Irish and still Northern Irish. And I think that still holds. But I think I think Europe are, are acting appropriately. They know that kind of weighing in to a binary isn't, isn't helpful. 
successful, but they're doing what they have always done for, for Northern Ireland for decades since the structural funds they are investing in the practicalities and, and the fact that, you know, the best peace process is a job, that if people have access to decent work and things to live for and go forward for, that, that there will be less scratching of the traditional wounds. Uh, so, so I, I think that's that's the logical way um, of, of doing it because the fact is, and again, to go back to Hume, it's always, it's not the territory that's uh, divided, it's the people. And for all of the dynamism in the conversation on the back of particularly Brexit and uh, Boris Johnson, who, who does turn people off, and then the third B, which is babies, because demographically um, there's a shift, you know, there's a growth in nationalism. Oh, for, for all of that, it still has to be about uniting people and, and none of those three things unite people. So some of the stuff that the EU has always funded, that's peace funding and the kind of practical structural stuff and the shared island initiatives are about putting flesh on those bones and making the conversation less about when will we have the border poll and how do we get to our 50% plus one and how do turning it more to how do we meaningfully improve outcomes for people? How do we, you know, take the opportunities and the synergies that come from being a small island? Now, I'm somebody who has just, who believes that practically um, it makes sense for this small island to want to run one set of things, but I completely understand that a situation that's just a reversal of partition that happened 100 years ago next year doesn't make any sense to trap a minority to have a, a, a border poll that narrowly wins uh, and has a minority of uh, you know unionism that just didn't want to be there you have to try and grow uh, and build consensus and actually the Good Friday Agreement provided lots of opportunity to do that in uh, bodies like the North-South Ministerial Council but we haven't utilised them because people have focused more on the identity stuff and because the assembly has been up and down but Mike and Neil were both uh, absolutely correct to locate it all in the Good Friday Agreement and it is it's like a puzzle you know it's about relationships in Northern Ireland relationships in the North and South of Ireland and the relationships between Britain and Ireland and if any one of those three relationships is strained or underperforming it damages the other two you've got to whatever way we move this conversation forward and, and, and I, I I don't hide the fact that I have a, des- a preferred desired outcome you have to keep uh, each set of relationships uh, going and improving and you have to have structures that kind of underpin them. And I think they'll all agree that the European Union is probably the greatest peace project in human history. So Neil, Mike, Claire, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me on The Bunker. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And my last question to you all, it's just a rapid yes or no. Will the UK and the EU agree a deal this week and avoid a hard border. Neil, yes or no? Um, yes, but it, the hard border question lies in the withdrawal agreement that thankfully has already been agreed. Claire? Uh, yes, but I think it will be a way for thin and we will be talking about this, unfortunately, and wrestling with it for many, many years to come. And Mike? Yes, but it won't be the end of the matter. Well, there you have it, listeners. It sounds like we're going to revisit this all over again with this fantastic panel at some point again in the future. Now, remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. We start your week on Mondays and the main panel show is on Tuesdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just search our Twitter or Facebook for details. See you next time. 
The Bunker Daily was presented by Naomi Smith. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.